Join us on Tuesdays this fall for the Jesus Calling Stories of Faith television show on Circle TV, hosted by country music superstar Lauren Elena. Each week, we'll talk with people from all walks of life about their heartaches, their victories, their joy, and their pain, and how their faith kept them going through it all. You don't want to miss it. Tuesdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time and re-airing Sundays at 2 p.m. Eastern this fall on Circle TV. Visit JesusCalling.com TV to find out how to watch in your area. You got to try and see this whole life as a long-term deal and not one moment. It's so hard, though, I mean, to not... You know, we literally preach, I think I probably wrote it in a few songs, live in the moment, you know, but technically you don't want to live too much in the moment. You want to realize that bad moments can disappear in the grand scheme of things, but we try and soak up all the good ones for sure. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. One of the greatest blessings we could ever ask for is having a family, whether it's the family we're born into or the family we choose. Our guests this week are Brad and Curtis Rempel of the country music group High Valley, along with Super Bowl winning quarterback and high school football coach Trent Dilfer. They each share stories that show the life-saving power of cultivating deep connections with people who stand by us in our lowest moments and cheer with us in our highest moments. High Valley is a country music duo who originally hail from Canada. Brothers Brad and Curtis Rempel started singing at a very young age with their family and with their church, and followed their love of music along with their dreams all the way to Nashville. As they began touring and finding success in the country music world, the brothers agreed that they'd always wanted their music to be something families could enjoy together, just as they had enjoyed music as a family together growing up. This commitment to put family first has always been a primary motivation, even to the point that the brothers made a goal to give up heavy touring to spend more time with their kids. We're High Valley. Yes, we sure are. My name is Curtis Rempel. I've been doing High Valley full-time for 15 years. Yeah, 15 years, and I've been doing it for like 23, 24 years. Our hometown is Lacrete, Alberta. It's, uh, what is it, 2,500 miles northwest of yeah. Nashville. We were actually 20 miles from Lacrete uh, out in the country on a grain farm. Um, yeah, the whole next-door neighbor thing is not a thing. Like, everybody grows up on, I would say most people have a 1,000 acres or, or more. If you're a farmer, a lot of them have a couple thousand acres or more. But So you drive out of your farm you know, in a vehicle, you don't just like walk outside and see what your neighbor's up to and you don't walk to your neighbor's house. I remember there was maybe a couple days of the year when it was like just cold enough and the wind was blowing the perfect direction. You could hear your neighbor's voices, maybe faintly. Yeah. So it was pretty quiet out there. But we grew our our childhood, our whole background's crazy because our mom and dad and I know this because of uh, trying to become an American immigrant and doing all the paperwork. Our mom and dad's birth certificates, they're both Mexican, technically. They're both born and raised as uh, Old Order Mennonite, kind of like the Amish. So horse and buggy, no electricity. Down in Cuauhtémoc, Mexico, in uh, the state of Chihuahua. And they end up moving to Canada. We're born in Canada. Now we live down in Nashville. It's just kind of a crazy world. Uh, grew up speaking German. Our, our whole hometown and our family, everybody speaks German. Our family was really into the harmonies. Uh, I'm the youngest of six kids. Our three older sisters, they uh, 
they're crazy about harmonies and so that was just like yeah that was a big thing in church but it was like a really highlighted thing just in our family alone. yeah so and they all have so many kids our one sister has seven kids and one has five kids and they can sing i literally posted on cindy Instagram. has eight kids eight sorry i'm one behind losing track yeah if mom invites us all over for dinner there's like if she says hey kids come over if we're all in town happens once every three years but if we are all in town there'd be like 40 people show up two years before curtis was born um when i was four years old our family recorded our first album and it was uh, a gospel album in our church and by album i mean the sound guy in the church hit record on a tape player and we sang 10 songs in a row one pass each and i got two songs on that record one was called self-control, but I couldn't say control, so it was kind of like self-quintrol. And uh, the other one was called He's a Great Big God. And that's how it all started. Growing up, they had tons of records, and Ricky Skaggs won as far as which record would actually stay upstairs in the living room by the record player. Our town didn't have radio, and um, we didn't own a TV. And I was a teenager when we got one, Curtis, obviously younger, but so... It was just kind of records for the first few years. The first five CDs I bought were all from skaggsfamilyrecords.com. <laughs> so I bought two Skaggs records and then uh, three three records of Bluegrass Axe that he signed. We didn't know about anything different. You know, we didn't have pop culture to tell us who was cool. We'd spent many years now telling people what we didn't have. We grew up without radio, without TV, without, without, without. And we wanted to write a song embracing what we grew up with, as opposed to, you know, once again going down that other road. So I think the best way to summarize literally our childhood and what we had and what we're so thankful for is the line that says, Ricky Skaggs on the vinyl, King James on the Bible. I've always remembered that when I was 12, our dad literally you know, he could have said, I want to use this money to buy more farmland to whatever his dreams were, right? But instead, he took his money and gambled it big time on our our dreams. So I've made it um, a dead serious effort. Um, when, when our kids were born, straight up, I wasn't the best dad in the world. I was very focused on our career and my dreams personally. And I regret it now because... Now I look back and see my wife. I had to work so hard, you know, and I was out trying to make High Valley the most famous country band in the world. So our mom and dad drove to Nashville for their honeymoon, which is super crazy to think 30 years later they come back, they're huge Ricky Skaggs fans, and they get to hear their boys play the Grand Ole Opry. Ricky Skaggs introduces us, and it's all this full circle moment. Since we've had like the age of responsibility to feel like God had a purpose for what we were doing. Our biggest goal has been, can we bring families together? You can go to any restaurant in the world, walk in the door and see about a hundred families that are all not talking to each other while they stare at different devices. And our goal has been, is there a way that we can bring families together? And, and Oh, is High Valley in town? Yeah. How do you know? Because there's families everywhere downtown. There must be, you know, High Valley must be somewhere. And not even just at the shows, listening to the records too, you know, it's something that they can have on in the car and you don't have to skip any songs, you don't have to skip any verses or, you know, it's 
it's all good, you know. And when when families come through an autograph line and the teenage girl walks away and the mom quickly tries to whisper without embarrassing her daughter, thank you for making music that I can listen to in the car with my kids, you know. That's what brings me so much joy. I'm, I'm always trying to figure out how to be a dad. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I've been a dad for almost seven years and I'm still just trying to always praying that God will keep me humble and if I want my kids to own their own mistakes, I got to own mine. And I'm always asking God to keep me humble and I mean, I fail as a dad all the time. I do. But I've learned to develop the ability to tell my son when I fail. And I say my son, I have two, I have a daughter that's three and a daughter that's almost one. But my son is that age where he's aware. He's watching my behavior and my wife's behavior. And we pray as a family that all the time that God will work in our hearts, help us to be servants of each other and humble. And I'm choking up because it matters to me. I want my son to see humility in me. And it's hard. It's hard to be humble. And I really um, have made it a point in the last probably six or seven years is like whatever my kids dreams are when they hit 12 mine don't matter anymore not that I don't want to do what God has called us to do but it's all about them at the time when we set the goal we were doing 185 shows we were going to go down to 50 over a five-year period of time and in the middle of all that God said oh by the way uh, you'll actually do like 12 in the year before so we got like 12 in and then the whole year shut down but for, because we were on purpose headed in that direction, I think it's been way less of a shock to us than a lot of other bands that were just like getting, you know, let's say you're getting a few hits together and things are rocking and then boom, it gets, the rug gets pulled out from under your feet. So for us, it's a little different scenario than a lot of other people. A lot to be thankful for. I, I was not raised like this, but our kids are early risers and they wake up. He'll ask us, can you wake me up a little earlier tomorrow so I have more time to do stuff? Which means he likes to play basketball before school for like half an hour. So we'll do devotions, do breakfast, study, and then we'll go outside right now and play basketball. I always buy sports autobiographies. So I'll read like football players, uh, a lot of hockey players. And we went to the bookstore called Books a Million. And while we were there, my wife said, hey, we really should, because Drew, our oldest, is getting older, we should find a, a newer, you know, slightly older feeling devotional for him. So Jesus always, there it was, sitting on the shelf in uh, Books a Million. So we picked it up and bought it. And we've been, yeah, just every morning before school. Our kids, sometimes Drew, my oldest, will read it. Sometimes I'll read it. It just puts the day in perspective. And then the school's just half a mile from here, so I drive uh, him to school. And then we pray on the way to school. And so far, he still gives me a hug and says, I love you every time before I <laughs> drop him off. No guarantees how much longer that's going to last. but It might last a long time. We, we soak it up while we can. You do all the things that you think are the right things to do, but God has this story that he's writing that... It's very obvious for me to look back on our story and say, okay, 
you know, a couple of Mennonite dudes from the North Pole that grew up, you know, in a German house, probably not going to play the Grand Ole Opry anytime soon or get a record deal out of New York. And God just has this wild, amazing way. My one friend prays for us and he says, I always pray that God will reveal things in your life that are so obvious that it was him that there's no way you can even try to take credit for it yourself. If you're running a race, you know, that God has marked out for you, there's so much fulfillment in it. And, you know, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith is, you know, the anchor in that passage. But it's, if you're just fighting a fight and finishing a race and not keeping the faith, then, you know, maybe we would have had something else in our life that would have sort of made us feel good for a while. But I think the real joy for us is that you can see God's hand in it. The way that God can use just dudes trying to make music and trying to use our gifts and even if they're not as good gifts as, as other people might have, it's like God has this amazing way of just doing what He wants with, with what you've got. To hear High Valley's latest single, Grew Up On That, visit their website at highvalleymusic.com. Stay with us for Trent Dilfer's story after a brief message. Many Jesus Calling readers have expressed how they have written notes in the margins of their own Jesus Calling, remembering important life moments and prayer requests. Now, there's a new note-taking edition of Jesus Calling. It has the same great 365 devotions with full written-out scripture verses and a new layout that leaves space for journaling and recording those inspirational thoughts and memories. Get a free sample of the note-taker's edition of Jesus Calling at JesusCalling.com. Super Bowl champion quarterback Trent Dilfer has three solid pillars that hold him up, family, football, and faith. Since he was a young boy, these pillars have given Trent a steady foundation during the highs and lows of his life, including when he and his wife Cassandra faced the unimaginable loss of their five-year-old son Trevin in 2003. But recently, Trent realized that God can repurpose pain into passion. And today, Trent channels that passion into parenting and coaching for a high school football team. My name is Trent Dilfer. I am 47 years old, uh, father of four. I've been married to my beautiful wife, Cassandra, for 26 years. Spent 14 years as a quarterback in the NFL. Was lucky enough in 2000 to win a Super Bowl with the Baltimore Ravens. Um, retired in 2008, spent nine years as an analyst for ESPN. Uh, and then last year became the head football coach at Lipscomb Academy in Nashville, Tennessee. Football's had an enormous impact in my life. I think I'm still drawn to it as passionately as ever before because I see the impact that it has. I use this term all the time. I don't think football is more important than anything else. I, mean, I think that's silly uh, to say that it's more important than academics or the arts or politics or math or science. Uh, it's more impactful than most things. Football has this unique way of not just impacting the individual that's playing it, coaching it, but especially here in the South, it, it impacts communities. It has a massive effect on either bringing people together or tearing them apart. Uh, it has 
the ability to challenge somebody that plays it or coaches it in such a way that your true colors will come out. It can help be a change agent for so many kids that don't have a chance to do anything else. I love that part of it. I, I love the importance of it, but more importantly, the impact it has on everybody it touches. I grew up in a Northern California community. It's called Aptos, California. It's just south of Santa Cruz, California. My parents got divorced when I was two. My mom remarried when I was five. My dad remarried when I was 10. Really had two great fathers. My real father was a very strong influence in my life. Uh, he passed in 2010. Uh, my stepdad was a great influence, especially in, in the competitive sports space. He was a football coach. My stepdad had a huge influence on me as a competitor, uh, not just football, but looking at life through more of a competitive lens. My mom was an educator, grew up around, both of them very academic, uh, so the standards were very high in terms of not just academics, but performance in general. You've been given something, uh, your job is to maximize it. Too much is given, much is expected. It was a common theme in my household. So I got started in football because my stepdad was a coach. I was always around it. So I say all the time, I, I literally grew up on the back of a blocking sled. He was an offensive line coach. I would go to practice. I was the ball boy at the high school, at the junior college. I actually dreamed of being a professional basketball player. Basketball was my first love. I was very good at it. I was my best sport by far. And then my stepdad around my freshman, sophomore year said, you know, realistically, you're not built athletically or size-wise to make basketball a long-term thing. You're probably good enough to play in college, don't know what level, but you're built like a football player. And I was not a great football player early on. Uh, I was a really good athlete playing football. So he's the one that kind of birthed the idea that I could go to college through football. I was a very good student, so academically, a lot of things were open, options were open for me. But he's really the one that said, you know, if you want to get your college paid for, it's most likely going to be football. And really started me down this track of dreaming of going to college to play football, which obviously launched into a dream once I got to college to play in the NFL. Yeah, you know, I've been asked this question a million times um, about how my faith has impacted my life. And I, I kind of always give the same answer. It is my life. It's the foundation. It's the starting point for everything. Now, do I make a million mistakes and do I lose sight of that? Daily, daily. I'd be lying to say I don't daily lose perspective on that. But my big why is my relationship with the Lord. I can't imagine what life would have looked like without that foundation, I guess is the easier way of answering it. I, I really don't know where my why would come from. We have probably eight different versions of Jesus Calling. It's become the gift we give to others. All three of my daughters are very consistent with it. I have a leather-bound copy that I used to travel with. It's been a real big part of our family. And what the Lord did through Sarah, that's so brilliant, is the connectivity of her journaling. And it, it connects to my 17-year-old. She was doing it when she was 12. You know, and it connects to a grumpy old man. 
and it connects with a grandpa and it connects to a mom and it connects to whoever. There's just this connectivity in her inspired words. I've done a lot of devotionals. I've done a lot of journals. I've done a lot of that in my faith walk. I've never done one that every time I open it, I'm like, how does she know she's talking to me today? <laughs> and it's the perfect way. It's not too esoteric. It's not too big. It's not too out there. It's just exactly kind of the ways that I'm talking to myself that day. I find that amazing. Jesus Calling, February 8th. I'm above all things. Your problems, your pain, and the swirling events in this ever-changing world. When you behold my face, you rise above circumstances and rest with me in heavenly realms. This is the way of peace, living in the light of my presence. I guarantee that you will always have problems in this life, but they must not become your focus. When you feel yourself sinking in the sea of circumstances, say, help me, Jesus, and I will draw you back to me. If you have to say that thousands of times daily, don't be discouraged. I know your weakness, and I meet you in that very place. Trevin was our second. He would be 22. He would have just turned 22 in November. He died at the age of five and a half. He had a virus attack his heart. We were down on a family vacation, Disneyland in Southern California. He got a common cold. We came back from vacation and he just wasn't turning the corner like our oldest had or as he had in the past. And um, took him in for a series of tests. Uh, they had done some blood work with them and, and felt like there might be some hepatitis concerns. So they were going to have them stay the night in a children's hospital in Fresno, a great children's hospital. And, uh, but we felt really good about it. I mean, my, my last time ever talking to him, he had kind of been hydrated and came out of this kind of listless state and was laughing and was his, his normal self. And it was, hey, bud, you're just going to go have some tests done. Don't worry about it. Mom's going to stick around with you. And I'm going to take the girls back to the house. And um, on their way to the children's hospital, he coded. And four times in the next handful hours, they had to uh, manually pump his heart and, and keep him alive. I, the last time I, I, when I had got taken the girls back and then rushed to the children's hospital, I mean, I'm literally watching these two male nurses, you know, manually keep him alive. They had come out at, at one point in the middle of the night and said they had lost him and had him on this heart-lung bypass machine waiting for a heart. And at, early on, it seemed like it was going to happen. Like, why wouldn't he get a heart? And then you start realizing, well, it's the part I can't get through. For him to get a heart, that another family has to lose their child. And I'd say that's probably the, the greatest. And to this day, I, I still don't have a, an answer. But that was kind of my greatest faith dilemma, was do you beg God to save your own child's life knowing that that was going to cost another family their child's life? And what I've come to peace with is that it was time for him to be with his real daddy. 
and 40 days later, we had to take him off life support because at 33 days, no heart came up um, and he got a systemic infection. And once you have a systemic infection, uh, you're no longer a candidate. So we, we, we sought a lot of counsel in that week's time, um, played the long game. And then finally he was just, they weren't gonna be able to medicate him through the pain. Um, so we had to turn off life support he went home to be with the Lord and um, I rest in Philippians 4 6 and 7 it's been, it's been the scripture that's not just um, been my bedrock scripture but I think has allowed me to tell the story and help others that have dealt with the same thing is you know, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And it is one thing to talk about the peace of God that transcends understanding, but to be washed with it, not just experience it, but to be washed with it to a period of my life now that I really had this breakthrough a few years ago where I'm actually thankful. And I've said that's offended some people that I've said that too. How could you be thankful that um, your family lost somebody? I said, because he's better off. You know, his, his heavenly daddy's doing a much better job with them than I, I would have. And I, that, I think I only can say that because of a piece that transcends understanding that, that it doesn't make sense. I could get it if you're not a follower, if you haven't experienced an intimacy with the Lord like I have. Um, you can't comprehend that, but I'm telling you that it's real. I still to this day can't understand how somebody can get through how hard life is without that peace that transcends understanding. This idea of my pain being repurposed into passion, it, it hit me in an interview. I, I had never written it down. I had never thought about it that way. I was being asked a question, and it literally was like the Lord gave me the words as I'm in this interview. It was, it was in the context of, this is crazy. Why are you doing this? Because this really made no sense. If you really want to drill deep into why I'm here, you really can't find sense to it. It was a calling. I'll never forget it. There's... Really what started this transition from retiring, which way too early, and really just being lazy, was I was sitting in, a, in church in Austin, Texas in October. I think it was the second week of October. And I, I don't remember what the pastor was preaching on. I just remember he was talking about all the missed opportunities when you say no to God and a mental Rolodex of all the things I had said no to, that I had chased ambition and uh, fame and financial uh, success and all the things of the world, and had said no to um, so many th opportunities that he had presented uh, from the time I was done playing um, that seemed either too hard, too overwhelming, not in my skill set. What well, I made every excuse there was, and I just kind of stayed there in the quiet after service, and and just said, "Lord, I'm done saying no. Like I, I'm not fulfilled right now. Uh, I have everything any man could want, 
and I'm, I feel a little empty. And I, it must be because I've said no to too many things. So whatever you say, whatever you tell me to do next, I'm in. But I was scared to death to be called that way. I said, hey, we're going. Whatever it is, like, be ready to pack up and go. And really, the next few months, just things stirred in me. I didn't feel really called in, but my mind was way more open to stuff. And then sure enough, knucklehead Trent, I get this call. And the first thing I think is no. And then I'm on campus. And the first thing I'm thinking is no. And I'm asked to take the job. And the first thing I say is no. And then I'm, I'm on a plane leaving here after being offered this opportunity. And I go, oh my gosh, I just said no to a bunch of things. I said I was never saying no to again. And I got back home and I got with Cass and Delaney and over a course of a few days, and I just said, there's no way they're going to release me. So they're, they're going to be the no. So I said, okay, God, I got an out here. I'm not going to have to do this because I, okay, I'm in. Yes, I'll do it. But they're not going to say yes. There's no way they're saying yes. And I mean, both of them said, no, we're doing this. I said, no, well, hold on a second. Do you really know what you're asking for? They're like, we're doing this. I think coming to Nashville and being around these boys opened up some wounds in a healthy way. And I, I had noticed that all this pain that was resurfacing, like I hadn't dealt with some Trevin stuff in a couple years really. And every day I was being confronted with these kids that I'm looking at their faces. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Trevin. And it, it hurts. And, uh, what I was seeing though in my in my life was that it was cool as these wounds were being opened as I was dealing with some of this pain again it was bringing out a passion in me that I hadn't had in years maybe more than I had ever had um, that passion surfaced as thought leadership it surfaced as capacity it surfaced as um, energy it surfaced as compassion some would tell you I wasn't the most compassionate person at times in my life. And, and all of a sudden I had this compassion I hadn't had before, uh, a sensitivity. Uh, I was relationally more engaged. Um, I was connecting better with people. Uh, and, and I really, it hit me in this one interview. This is this pain that I'm open to again and it's being repurposed into a really cool passion talking about honoring trevin's memory obviously what i'm doing here at lipscomb academy i've been given this opportunity to um, coach slash parent a bunch of boys and i see some of these parents and them with their sons and i don't envy them it's not envy it's I hope you appreciate how awesome this is. I hope you can appreciate um, this experience you're going to have with your boy as he goes through these teenage years. And I want to make it better for you. You know, I want to make it richer for you. Um, and a lot of what we're doing here is to to enhance that experience with these boys and their parents. And um, I feel that this part of the calling is to one day, I hope they come back and say, well, that was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And not just the football, but this connection I had with my son and the environment that you built there helped facilitate that. Sometimes we, we stay in our pain 
because we think that's where we should live. And we would feel guilty if that pain turns into something positive. And I would just tell you from a life experience that that pain repurposed into passion is, is an incredible uh, redemptive quality that only, only the Lord Jesus Christ can provide. To keep up with Trent, follow him on his various social media channels. If you'd like to hear more stories about the power of creating deep connections with others, check out our interview with author Ron Hall. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we speak with Academy Award-winning actor Matthew McConaughey, who's recently written a new book called Green Lights, a memoir of his life pulled from 35 years of journaling about his experiences. Matthew shares what he's learned over his lifetime and how practicing gratefulness has impacted his journey. I think everyone has an innate quest to be a little better, be a little more true to themselves. The more we're thankful for, the more we will create in our lives to be thankful for, which I do believe that's a fact. Do you love hearing these stories of faith weekly from people like you whose lives have been changed by a closer walk with God? Then be sure to subscribe to the Jesus Calling Stories of Faith podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review so that we can reach others with these inspirational stories. And you can also see these interviews on video as part of our original web series, with a new interview premiering every other Sunday on Facebook Live. Find previously broadcast interviews on our YouTube channel, on IGTV, or on JesusCalling.com slash video.